I trust that having celebrated the Lord's Supper this day and heard the preaching of the Word and the Gospel this morning and gathered together tonight and contemplated the cross of Christ, that we would be ready and willing to offer to our Savior uh, our life and our all. Turn, if you will, in your Bibles to John chapter 2. Tonight we'll be looking at the first 11 verses, the first miracle of our Savior in his public ministry. John chapter 2. And we'll be looking at the first 11 verses. Here now the word of God. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does that, this have to do with me? My hour is not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said, up to, Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. They filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn it, the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs. Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word inspired by your Holy Spirit, intended to strike a chord in our hearts, to be received by faith. Enable us this evening, grant us ears to hear, and minds to understand, eyes to behold, and hearts to embrace our Lord and Savior, freely offered in the gospel, continued work in our hearts by your Spirit, we pray, and ever feeding upon him by faith. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. I enjoy uh, weddings. I've had the privilege to do uh, quite a few over the years of seeing the joy of the young couple, seeing them stand uh, before me beaming with uh, smiles. And, but, you know, weddings and wedding plans don't go well without difficulties. There's often uh, preparation and a lot of work, hoping that perfect day will arrive. And there's also often tension with all the planning. I remember years ago, I performed a wedding ceremony of a couple of our students when I was involved in campus ministry. They really wanted their friends to attend, so they decided to get married at the beginning of spring break. And so sure enough, the students showed up. We had a wonderful ceremony, but I never will forget the reception following, another equally joyful occasion. It was at the Liberty Hall Inn in Pendleton. And like I said, the students showed up and they went through the line as the tables were set with vegetables and fruit and meats and cheese and all kinds of dessert and of course the wedding cake. The students went through first and they were like locusts, just <laughs> cleaning the table. And Becky and I saw the looks on the faces of the caterers like, we're going to run out of food. We have that situation here when they actually ran out of something. They ran out of not food, but they ran out of 
wine. Jesus and his disciples have been invited to a marriage ceremony in Cana of Galilee. Now, marriages were a little bit different. The ceremonies were a little bit different than they are today. They began with a betrothal that was more serious and solemn than mere engagement. In fact, it was such a solemn agreement to marry the would-be bride that only a divorce could sever that betrothal. And after that period of time, then the ceremony began. Uh, The groom and his groomsmen would gather together and there'd be a procession to the bride's house. There the ceremony would take place. And then after the ceremony, there'd be a procession to the newlyweds' house where they would live. And sometimes that celebration would last not just a couple of hours the way ours do, but literally sometimes up to a week. And so there was festivities, there was food, there was wine. But here the dreaded fear of the host happened. They ran out of the wine. Now, in Jesus' day, that would not only have been social embarrassment, but actually a financial liability. The groom was responsible for the hospitality requirement and could actually be sued if he failed to do so. Uh, You better have saved up a little bit of money before you got married in those days. And I don't think it's insignificant, however, that Jesus decides to perform his first miracle of changing water to wine at a wedding feast. Certainly by gracing this young couple with his presence, he was reminding us that marriage is to be held in honor among all men. But that's really not the the point of this text. It's the occasion, but not the point. The, The point is that there is a sign signifying something. Look at verse 11, and we'll see it again in just a minute. This was the first of his signs that Jesus performed. That's a word we'll see running throughout the Gospel of John. There were 35 miracles recorded in the Gospel. John only records seven of them, and he refers to them as signs. What is a sign? Mark Johnston says they are supernatural events filled with supernatural significance. Think of that word significance for a moment. The significance is intended to highlight the magnificence of our Savior. That's the point of a sign, not simply to wow the crowd, but to put that neon arrow pointing on the person and work of Jesus. And so John will record seven of those signs that point to the significance of and the magnificence of our Savior. Well, in this text, the wedding seems to have begun like any other, but then Jesus informs them they have no wine in verse 3. And then Jesus responds in verse 4 what might first sound like a rather terse, rude response. Woman, what does this have to do with me? Now, woman in the Greek uh, has more nuances than than just the the word. It's not as cold and harsh as it sounds in English. It actually can be a term of respect respect or even affection, although I wouldn't advise husbands to address your wives in this matter. It might be understood better as dear woman. Think of Jesus at the cross. He uses the same phrase, woman, behold your son. As he sees her weeping over the loss of her son, humanly speaking, he looks at her in a term of endearment, and he says, woman, behold your son. And then he goes on to say, woman, what does this lack of wine have to do with me? 
My hour has not yet come. That's another word, recurring word, we'll see in the Gospel of John. What does Jesus mean when he says, my hour has not come? My purpose for coming. The hour in which I would sacrifice myself as an atoning sacrifice for sinners has not yet come. There's more work to do. And now Mary seems to just dismiss everything he says. Woman, what does this have to do with me? What's running out of wine have to do with me? My hour has not come. And she looks at the servants and says, do whatever he says. And then what happens? Jesus turns the water to wine. What do we learn from this sign? Rather than simply being something in which Jesus honors marriage, which he does, it's intended to point to what? What did verse 11 say? Look at it again. This is the first of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory. So the question we must ask is, how is the glory of Christ manifested particularly in this sign? Well, first, I believe the glory of Christ is manifested through his transforming power. Six stone water jars were there that had been used for uh, Jewish purification rites, and they were filled with water. And John then matter-of-factly says in verse 9, the water was changed to wine. What does this tell us about Jesus? He possesses creative, recreative, transforming power. Remember where we are in following the timeline of the Gospel of John. As John keeps saying, the next day, the next day, three days later, we're in day seven. Again, that would have caused the Jewish minds to run back to when? What they did to in the prologue, to creation, and the seven days of creation. And here Jesus is at the beginning of his ministry on day seven, causing them to think back of what John has just written. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. And all things were created by him. Jesus, in changing the water to wine on this day, is reminding them he is the creator with recreative and transforming power. He has power first not only to change water to wine, but power to change hearts. I love that picture of the new creation in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We've experienced that, have we not? Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a what? New creation. The old has gone, the new has come. How did that take place in your heart? How did that take place in my life? Through the powerful work of the Holy Spirit, through the ministry of our Savior himself, who has creative power. But Christ's transforming power, his creative power is also introduces a whole new way of living and a whole new approach to God. This idea of the ceremonial water jars was a reminder to the Jewish people. There are ceremonies you have to keep. There's a moral law that you must have to keep up with and keep up with it in perfection if you're going to enter the presence of a holy, holy, holy God. I don't think it's just an accident that those water jars were there. Leon Morris writes, believing that those water jars, ceremonial water jars, were intended to remind us of this. Jesus changes the water of Judaism into the wine of Christianity. The water of Christlessness into the wine of the richness and fullness of eternal life. And the water of the law into the wine of the gospel. 
Jesus is saying, you no longer will need, when I'm finished, to be washed with this water. I will wash you with my blood. And not only wash you externally, I will wash you internally. And he transforms the way we were to approach God by obedience to the law through his own obedience. And now we can enter into freely the grace of his salvation. But I think the miracle of this transforming water to wine and this transforming power is a reminder that one day Christ will renew all things. He will transform all things. Again, I don't think it's an accident that his first miracle takes place at a marriage because fast forward now all the way into Revelation and you see this picture of a marriage again, don't you? And a marriage banquet. Listen to what John writes in Revelation 21. And then I saw a new heaven and a new earth For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. Sound familiar from this morning? The covenant with Abraham reiterated here. And he at that moment will wipe away every tear from our eyes. I remember I shared that one time and years, uh, 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 years ago. And a little seven-year-old came up to me and said, what about tears of joy? I said, okay, you got me. There will probably be tears there, but not tears of sadness, tears of joy. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. This miracle of changing the water to wine were reminding us that only Christ has this creative, recreative, transforming power. And one day he will not only change hearts and lives of individuals, he will change all that is into the new heavens and the new earth. We see the transforming power of Christ in this miracle. It gives glory to that transforming power. But second, I believe this miracle points out and manifests Christ's provision of abundant joy. The glory of Christ is seen in his provision of abundant joy. Here's an example of extreme sadness, especially on the part of the groom. We've run out of wine to extreme gladness in Jesus' presence and providing for them and changing the water to wine. Wine uh, throughout scripture is perceived as a good gift from God and it is a symbol of of joy. The psalmist says that God causes, quote, wine to gladden the heart of man, Psalm 104, verse 15. So by changing the water to wine and providing that for the people, Jesus is demonstrating that he's what? He's the source of all joy, lasting joy. Wine won't produce lasting joy, but Christ will. Now, let me just run down a brief rabbit trail because I know we're in the south And uh, you have to discuss when you hear the word wine, there are many people who've done all kinds of backflips trying to take all the alcohol out of this wine. And what you end up with, according to some people, is it's the equivalent of really good Welch's grape juice. Um, It's interesting. I saw the the movie The Jesus Revolution. 
And uh, one of the young men that God used was a fellow named Lonnie Frisbee. And these people were, were saved, I mean, directly, like the day before, out of drugs and alcohol and illicit sex. And they came to faith in Christ. And so Lonnie Frisbee, sitting in Calvary Chapel with Chuck Smith, he hears the words of institution to the supper read, just as we heard read this morning. And they're passing it around. And you hear Lonnie go, doesn't taste like wine. Well, Jesus did because it was wine. You, you see that in the response of the master of the ceremony in verse 10. Look at verse 10. And said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you've kept the good wine until now. That was stated uh, to the uh, master of ceremony, to the, to the groom. Um, the phrase drunken freely refers to when wine is taken its full effect. Too much leads to what? It leads to drunkenness. I don't care how much Welch's grape juice you drink. It might make you sick, but it will not make you drunk. There was alcohol in this wine. Furthermore, he refers to it as the good wine. In that culture, that would have never referred to as simply grape juice. It was fine-aged wine. That was what was expected of the guests to receive first when they arrived. Now, having said this, uh, let me say a couple of things. Scripture does forbid drinking wine in excess. It clearly condemns drunkenness. But the Scriptures do grant believers in Christ the liberty to drink wine in moderation. Now, wisdom would also put another governor on that law of liberty. Uh, you know, if you're around folks who uh, may have weaker conscience or possibly addictions to alcohol, in that case, the law of liberty is trumped by the law of what? The law of love. And there is restraint that should be used in those instances. But scripture does teach that wine is a part of God's good creation. It's a sign of his blessing. It's a sign of his joy, according to the scriptures. And it was even used in the Lord's Supper in the upper room. It's a symbol of joy and gladness. So how does this miracle further manifest Jesus' glory? It's an emphasis that Christ and Christ alone, when you're depleted of joy, can provide joy, deep-seated joy, to the hearts of his people. Joy not rooted in our circumstances, but joy that's rooted in the work of our Savior. Listen to how Isaiah, in chapter 25, speaks of the coming Messiah and what the Messiah would do. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food, full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. And then Isaiah goes on and tells us why there's so much joy at this feast. He says, let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. That's why there's joy. Dan Doriani, in commenting in Matthew chapter 9 on the new wine of the gospel, says this. Jesus brings salvation to sinners, and it is time to celebrate. There is joy, deep-seated joy, when we understand what we deserve and what Christ has accomplished for us, and that we are headed to glory Itself. And now I want you to notice, too, how Jesus not only provides joy, but joy in abundance. 
Look at the abundance language in, in verse 7. Jesus said, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. It, it's a picture of, of right at the verge of overflowing, even overflowing. Becky and I laugh about um, the way her father likes to be served his coffee in the morning. Several uh, months back, she was pouring his coffee, and she left maybe a half inch to the top. And he looked at her and said, aren't you going to give me a full cup? He likes it like right up to the brim. That's why you have to have the saucer when you serve him. Overflowing right to the brim of overflowing. And that's the picture we have of the kind of joy Jesus is providing. Furthermore, look how much wine was there. 120 to 180 gallons. I've done almost 300 wedding ceremonies in my ministry. I've never seen anything close to that. Probably in all added together. What's the picture? Quality and quantity of joy that Jesus loves to provide. An unending source of abundant joy. That's why Jesus will read later on in John chapter 10. I've, the thief has come to steal, kill, and destroy. But I have come that you might have life and have it to the full. Have it Abundant, Jesus says. Peter, in speaking of this salvation that we should be rejoicing in, uh, says this in 1 Peter chapter 1. He writes of an inexpressible and glorious joy. Why? For you're receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. A inexpressible and glorious joy. The King James reads a joy unspeakable. One of the biographies, the hymn biographies I, I gave several months back was that of Anne Steele, a very prolific uh, hymn writer in the 18th century. And Cynthia Alders has written a wonderful biography on the life of Anne Steele entitled, To Express the Ineffable, the Hymns and Spirituality of Anne Steele. And, and I mentioned that night the word ineffable. What does it mean? It means beyond words beyond expression something that we can't even in all of our words and all of our expressions express well enough what God has done for us in Christ Peter says that if we understand the gospel and what Christ has done for us the Holy Spirit begins part of the fruit of the Spirit is what love joy peace beginning to work in us a joy that's inexpressible and in Effable expression that words cannot handle because of the salvation of Christ. So how might such joy express itself in our daily lives? Well, first of all, how do we gain such, such joy? The Puritan John Owen said this, The way we may be partakers of this grace is by a steady view of the glory of Christ as proposed in the gospel. By, can we say in the words of Isaac Watts, surveying the wonderful cross, contemplating the person and work of Christ. Well, once we do, how might this joy be expressed in our daily lives? How might it be expressed in our worship? You know, when we think about the regulative principle of worship, 
simply means that Scripture regulates our worship. It helps us understand worship. And the regular principle of worship calls us to a holy reverence and awe. The psalmist, for example, writes, Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy mountain. Why? For the Lord our God is holy. The writer to the Hebrews reminds us in the New Covenant, in the New Testament, that let us offer to God acceptable worship. What kind of worship is acceptable to God? Well, he tells us with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. But the regular principle of worship also calls not only for worship and reverence and awe, but it calls for expressions of joy and elation. Listen again to the Psalms that we're encouraged to, to sing. Uh, Psalms, for example, uh, Psalm 3211. It should sound a little familiar. It was our call to worship last Sunday, and it ended with shout for joy. Kind of what Dan Doriani said. Christ has come, provided salvation. Let's celebrate. Psalm 5, we read, but let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy. And spread your protection over them, and those who love your name may exult in you. Our call to worship this morning encourages the singing with stringed instruments and new songs, and it ends with loud shouts. Now, I don't know how Presbyterians handle that. We, we shout loudly and decently in an order somehow. But here's this evoking of emotions that, that God is calling for in worship, in response to his word, in response to our salvation. And Psalm 5, as it called us to sing for joy, to rejoice, and to exult. Now, you've heard me say this before. Some psalms call us to exalt, and some psalms call us to exult. One letter change in each. What's the difference To exalt is to declare the glory of God. To exalt is to delight in them. And you know it is possible to gather together for worship and to exalt without ever exalting. To declare without ever delighting. God calls us by his spirit as we contemplate the cross, as we survey the cross. He calls us to do what? Both. And so I don't know how it's going to be pulled off in heaven, but there'll be worship and reverence and awe and joy and elation. And Jesus is going to pull that off with God's people. Both, according to the regular principle of worship, are called for. Because the glory of Christ is manifested in the joy that he produces in the hearts and lives whose hearts have been gripped by grace. So what do we see so far in this first miracle of changing water to wine? We see the glory of Christ's transforming power manifested. We see the glory of Christ's abundant joy provision manifested. And finally, the glory of Christ is manifested in order to lead us to faith, to belief, to trust in Christ, and to rely on him more fully. Look at verse 11 again. This is the first of his signs. Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And what was the result? And his disciples believed in him. 
Throughout the Gospel of John, that's the purpose of the signs. To point people to the person and work of Christ, not just to wow them, but to win them. To see them bow the knee before Christ the King. Indeed, that's the purpose of the entire Gospel of John. Remember again his purpose? He tells us in chapter 20, verse 31, and he reminds us even there of the signs. Now, Jesus did many other signs. John lists only seven. He did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Jesus calls us through his miracles to a saving faith, to repentance of our sin, to embracing him by faith as he's freely offered in the gospel of his son. I think there's a picture of somewhat of what this saving faith looks like in what Mary commands the servants to do. She looked at them and said, do whatever he tells you. Saving faith trusts. And then once it trusts, it acts upon the words of the Savior. Saving faith does not merely believe in him cognitively, but it believes in him and receives him volitionally. I know that I must turn from my sin. And the work of God's Spirit moves me to embrace Jesus Christ by faith as he's freely offered in the gospel. And that faith trusts and acts upon who he is, what he's done, and what he says. And so when we look at passages like this, we must always ask the question, whether we come on Sunday morning or Sunday night or whenever the church doors are open, have you? Have you looked at Christ and surveyed the cross and responded in faith? Have you beheld the beauty and glory of Christ and then responded as saving faith will move us to respond, offering him our life, our soul, our all? Now, again, as we look at this passage, I don't think it's coincidence that Jesus chose the setting of the wedding to perform this first sign. Not simply to bless the marriage and to honor it, but I think also to point us, as we saw earlier, to that future wedding banquet. It's a sign pointing us beyond. Jesus will later use in the gospel a wedding banquet as a sign for the kingdom of God and what the kingdom is like and the king of that kingdom. And Jesus is celebrating the inauguration of the kingdom of God with this first miracle, this kingdom being portrayed here on earth. And Jesus will make that comparison again several times in the gospel. And also we'll see in the, in the epistles that the church is depicted as the what? The bride of Christ. And we'll also see in Ephesians and, and Revelation that there's a much anticipated celebration of heaven. And it's described in the gospels and in the epistles as what? A feast or a marriage banquet. Listen to Revelation 19. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are true words of God. There's an invitation. For who is the invitation? For all who believe. For all who place their faith and trust in the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. J.C. Ryle writes this of that coming 
Supper, that coming feast one day. A greater marriage feast than that of Cana will one day be held when Christ himself will be the bridegroom and believers will be the bride. A greater glory will one day be manifested when Jesus shall take to himself his great power and reign. And blessed will they be in that day who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Ryle writes of a greater glory. I believe Jesus also says there will be a greater joy that awaits us. You know, it's through the eyes of faith that we behold more clearly the beauty and the glory and the grace of our bridegroom, Jesus Christ. This sign points us to faith to his, uh, in his glory and to our joy. In 1857, Ann Cousins penned these words, which this sign is intended to point us this evening. Listen to the words of this wonderful hymn. Oh, I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. He brings a poor vile sinner into his house of wine. I stand upon his merit. I know no other stand. I'm hidden in his presence and held by his own hand. The bride eyes not her garment, but her dear bridegroom's face. I will not gaze at glory, but on my king of grace. Not at the crown he giveth, but on his pierced hand. The lamb is all the glory in my eternal stand. Oh, through the eyes of faith have you beheld him and have you believed in his name? Have you been captivated by his glory, seen that glory and the transforming power in your life and the joy inexpressible in your worship? And have you set your hope on that promised day, one day, when there will be a wedding banquet, a feast in which the presence of Christ and the blessings of Christ will never, ever, ever run out? That's what's before us, my friends. For all those who are looking and resting and relying upon Jesus Christ, our great bridegroom of the church. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this portion of your word. We thank you, Holy Spirit, for applying it to our hearts. We thank you, O Christ, that you chose a wedding banquet for your first miracle in your public ministry. Not only holding in high esteem and honor the institution of marriage between one man and one woman. Not only pointing to us one day that marriage supper the Lamb. But demonstrating the glory of your transforming power and changing our hearts and lives by the power of the gospel. And in one day renewing all things. And also as your glory has been revealed in the provision of abundant joy. Lord, in a fallen world, we struggle. Sometimes we have to fight for our joy. And so enable us to survey, enable us to contemplate, enable us to reflect upon the glory of Christ on the cross and work in us the fruit of your spirit of a love, joy, and peace that only you, Christ, can provide. Strengthen us by your grace and we look forward to that feast, to that wedding banquet of the Lamb in which your blessings will never, ever, ever run out. And for this we give you thanks and we give you praise.